everyone. Welcome to another episode of Inclusive Conversations. In this episode, we handed the mic over to Joe, who took some time out of his busy schedule to have a chat with a fellow alumna of our graduate program, Jen Sudechnia. She also has professional experience in financial services, and we thought Joe would be the perfect person to carry this conversation. Now, since we are very transparent in our conversations and about where we work and our professional affiliations, I do need to note that all the views expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the individuals and they do not represent any of the institutions mentioned at all. We speak only for ourselves. Personally, I really enjoyed listening to this conversation and I hope you do as well. Hi, Jen Sardichnaya. Did I say it right? Sir Dechnia. Sir Dechnia. Yeah. Jen Sir Dechnia. Exactly, yeah. So oh, by, the end, by the end of this, I'll have it down. Um, so you are a product design lead at Scotiabank in Toronto. Notice how I did not pronounce the second T. Something well that I've learned. Thank you. Well um, uh, and you have been for some time. How long have you been in your line of work? Oh, that is a great question, Joe. So <laughs> I've been working as a designer since, uh, let's say, early 2013, which is really hard to think about because time flies, especially the last couple of years. And uh, I've been in tech, so starting my career um, at IBM, actually, ever since uh, 2012. Yeah. Okay. And that to me still feels like a couple of years ago, but now that's a good 10 or so years behind us. <laughs> Scary. Um, how, why the jump into financial services? Another good question. So I think um, I would assume you're a little bit familiar, pretty familiar with Toronto as a, uh, as indicated by your pronunciation. So um, I think many of us in Toronto, what we know is that it's a massive hub for financial services. So pretty much when I look at any city and any geography, and I actually did uh, my master's at OCAD, which is our connection, uh, part of uh, kind of the crux of my master's was the impact of geography on the startup ecosystem. So when you look at Toronto, you see a lot of uh, financial innovation, you see a lot of fintechs, and that's because uh, that's where the financial ecosystem is for Canada and um, that's kind of in my opinion one of one of the spots where it's like it's the thing to do a lot of innovation um, a lot of startups a lot of central thinking uh, and I always kind of try to situate myself around you know that kind of big hub which Toronto is a big hub of financial services and you mentioned it but uh, the thing we have in common beyond working in financial services is the program at OCAD that's why right. why get into inclusive design? Another really great question. And that's it's it's serendipity, right? Sometimes. So I uh, at the time, I think when I decided to apply, it was 2015, and I was I was finishing my certificate in UX at NYU at the same time as working as a UX designer at the time. That's what we were called. Now it's more product design, you know five or so years ago was UX design. So I was a UX designer at a consultancy. And I think that, um, honestly, I just started browsing OCAD's programs. I was curious uh, how I could level up my knowledge at that master's level, uh, maybe a little bit more research-based, a little bit more framework-based. And to be honest, I took a look at all the programs. I went to the info session for probably every single one. And I think that 
I was in that inclusive design session and all of a sudden it was this opportunity for me to connect the path that I'd ended up choosing for my career with sort of the ambitions that I had had as let's say a, um, a student or somebody who was younger um, when I was in university and I went to school at UNC, actually University of North Carolina, um, I studied health policy and, and health policy and management in Mandarin. And a lot of my internships and a lot of my interest was all around uh, nonprofit work and international development. So uh, <laughs> one of the uh, one of the big things I did while I was in college is I founded a nonprofit or co-founded a nonprofit with somebody on the ground in Uganda to look at women's rights. And that's kind of, you know, at, at that, that time in my life, I definitely saw myself going into something that was um, in the direct line of work of kind of creating a better world in non-negotiable clear terms. And as I transitioned into the workplace, you know, there was just so much, when you transition, there's like a whole new world opens up to you with all these new challenges and new things you could possibly do. So I think the first few years of my career, I was just like sampling, sampling every industry, trying to figure out where I fit in and seeing that program at OCAD. Um, it was just this like moment of this is it, like, this is how I connect the, who I have been with who I want to become, um, on the path where, that I'm already on. And um, of course, I think having been interested and around inclusive design and working, I, th I believe in inclusive design for a while now, um, I think many of us have personal stories of people we know who can't access services or can fully partake in, uh, in sort of the community or the economy because the system wasn't made for them. Not because that there is anything in their abilities, it's literally the system is, excludes them. And I think having some of those personal stories with family um, for myself as well, it just was like, it was instant. I'm like, this is what I need to do. And financial services actually came after that, and I was just so fortunate to uh, wind up where I did, where inclusive design is such a huge part of our core design practice, our core design team, and it's championed at a very, very high level. Um, so it is actually part of my day-to-day -day now. So it's a great, great story. <laughs> I, I did not know that that was your journey, uh, but lots of that resonates even from the, I didn't know you went to UNC for some reason, but I went to Virginia Tech so we were doing sports all the time and I resented, oh, I resented you all because uh, you were better at most of them. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a detour, but why, I mean, the, the, um, uh, why the, how did you know that part of your like personal wiring included an interest in uh, more of like a uh, socially minded version of career? Where did that come from? Oh, that's a, you're digging deep. That's a really good question. I think for many people, that would be something they look to and maybe find in their childhoods. I think that would be similar for me. I mean, I, I think I have my parents to thank for that. They always really encouraged us to volunteer, to get involved in the community. We immigrated here from Belarus um, in 19, at the end of 1998. And I think having that experience where you kind of come in as a newcomer and you need so much, you need help, you need to understand how things work, you need to learn the language. Like there's, I think that kind of, um, as I've been fortunate to take part in Canada's economy, I would say Canada's 
um, really good. I, I'm sure everyone has different stories, but in my experience, uh, Canada is somewhere still that you can come and you can kind of take part in the dream. Like I could go on about this for a while, but I think there is a bit of this um, as, as an immigrant, this mentality that there is a place that if you come there and you work hard, you can make something happen for yourself. And I would say that in Canada, that's been proven true. And I see it, I've seen it happen for others. And uh, I just feel like I came in needing so much. I got so much help from the public systems, like public health care, public education. Uh, the reason I ended up at UNC on full scholarship was our excellent public education system would have never happened if I was, you know, in some neighborhoods in the U.S. And I don't want to make this a political conversation. So, <laughs> um, but uh, it's, uh, so I, I just felt so grateful for all of that. Um, and I felt that as I kind of managed to, um, amass the fortunes that Canada, not financially, but like the richness of life that Canada has been able to give me, I've always wanted to give back. And I think the very first time I remember giving my time back, I was probably super, super young. I mean, uh, something memorable is like I was 16 and my, uh, I basically spent uh, six months in Ecuador in the Amaguanya mountains in the, sorry, in the Andes mountains in a little village called Amaguanya working in a clinic and it's always, I think, from that kind of early age and before that, just really been part of what I wanted to do. So I always knew I wanted to tie in, tie that in in a big part to my career. And it was just a matter of how, while still being true up to the fact that I'm somebody who's naturally very intellectually curious. So I definitely wanted to combine all of the above. Mm. They should stick you on like one of those Canadian commercials for why people should yeah. <laughs> so now they're looking for data scientists i just heard so I, uh, i'm sure i come, come on over we'll take the data scientists from the u.s too <laughs> okay. um well in in what you were saying earlier you're talking about how uh a lot of the um problems of inclusion or the the opportunity space as it relates to inclusive design that you find personally compelling is the systematic variety. Um, and I know that part of your research uh, at OCAD was around, you know, what are the kind of uh, ecosystem characteristics of what uh, lends itself to innovation within financial services. So it's, it's again, it's not, um, you know, it's more of the systems level, the macro level types of exclusion. Is that uh, reflective of the types of uh, inclusive design problems you find most compelling uh, just naturally? Or is there another reason why those are uh, parts of your story? Hmm. So let me see if I can kind of get underneath your question. So part of uh, what you're asking about is um, systemic exclusion. So um, systems that are built in ways that unless we sit and think about and really dive in and be like, how does this exclude others that we don't see it? Um, is that kind of what you're asking around? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's a bit of a cheat answer to say all of the above. I think that uh, part of what I have been um, learning and unlearning as a designer, particularly with how 2020 went and um, seeing particularly all of the um, protests related to uh, the George Floyd killings and, you know, beyond that, I think I'm, I've become very sensitive to the idea that 
not everything is a problem for us to solve or a um, challenge for us to design for. So I think I'm trying to like figure out what's the new kind of vocabulary that I want to use and the language that I want to use. Um, because it wouldn't, the kind of designer user group relationship can be really problematic, particularly in the way that we have been designing for, you know, hundreds of years, whether that's industrial design or graphic design, there's a very specific kind of, or other kind of design, architecture, anything really, service design. There is uh, some groups that have had more of an influence over how those services, products, posters are created um, for others to use, as well as what then becomes the standard for that. Uh, so I think, and then the design process comes out of years of sort of both like with this current iteration of design thinking and then everything from like the grid system, it comes out of this standard of um, where only a few people really got to define what that standard was. And when you fall outside of that standard, you're, you know, you're not, you're not considered not meeting the bar when really you're just creating a totally different bar because the bar was separate. So I'm kind of going in a circle because I think I realized as we're chatting that I kind of want to adjust the language of this, of particularly that question. Um, I think a lot of the problem that we have is making sure that when we are working on anything, the right people are at the table. And that's really the beginning of designing anything. Um, and by the right people, I mean, the most varied representative diverse set we can think of, both from a demographic standpoint, um, but also from that invisible standpoint, people with different lived experiences, different mentalities, but very much so as well, uh, making sure that it's actually representative of the population. Like if Toronto, for example, is, uh, which it is about 10% black population, let's make sure that that's what we're seeing in our design team and in our broader team. Um, yeah, kind of talked a bit around there, but hopefully that well, answers. I mean, a lot of what you said, uh, I think lines up with things I have been thinking about in uh, recently, because I, uh, especially as it relates to communicating about inclusive design with people, um, in a professional capacity. One of the things that's hard to pin down is, uh, I, th I think you pointed at this, but like a lot of times it's not just about what is the interaction between the designed thing and a user. It's how, how, did, the, how did the system get the way that it is now? How did that user end up inter interacting with this uh, specific designed object or design asset? And what is the, you know, who, who was excluded from even being allowed to be a user, uh, for example, it might be one manifestation of that. And that is really hard in its abstraction to like bring that to light for somebody who's just like, you know, I, I have uh, a specific set of goals that I'm responsible for. Uh, I'm gonna design against those and I, I have a methodology for doing that. So illuminating some of like the assumptions that go into informing the entire ecosystem we're designing within it's not easy no no it's it's really tough and like what is what is the answer to that um mm -hmm. i uh, i went to a really great workshop um it's an uh, it's run out of i think actually virginia it's a it's a lab called the creative reaction lab they essentially i don't know if you've heard of them they have you yeah they're in uh it's st louis actually i don't want my state to take credit for something it doesn't deserve 
Okay, awesome. So um, I went to their um, How Traditional Design Thinking Protects White Supremacy workshop, and I just loved it. Like everything from the presentation of it to this kind of um, head-on confrontation of the theme. I think that um, I've spent, uh, and this is kind of what I part of where my answer comes from is I've been spending a lot of time like really thinking about white supremacy and thinking about how whiteness and capitalism are intertwined and how that's shown up everywhere in our system and what who that oppresses and I think it can be if you're beginning to think about these themes it can be um like the the term like white fragility right like it can you can totally see this happens to people like you just kind of can feel really like um, overwhelmed let's say um, and so I think even when we're talking about those themes, like when I'm talking to people about what I've been able to learn and what I haven't yet learned or what I'm trying to unlearn, sometimes there's this desire for like, well, what's the playbook? Like, how do you just all of a sudden stop being racist and become anti-racist? And in the similar way of like, we can't just dismantle, uh, you know, white supremacy and design overnight um, because we went through a playbook. That's kind of where I was getting at that. Like, I'm definitely interested and I think we can also talk about what are the actual tactical, practical things we can all do. But I think when we're talking about that high level, like how do we make sure that our design is actually inclusive? The answer to that is so much more complex than I could have ever even imagined while completing my master's. Like, uh, and I think they did a great job in, in not trying to give us the answers. Like, I, I don't know what your experience was like, but I really did feel that they had a you know, such a wealth of respect for a variety of experiences and just so much also respect for the students in the sense that um, I know that the freedom and the kind of um, ability to think on any subject that was welcomed for me to do in that program probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been as welcomed in other master's programs that weren't specifically looking for that um, opportunity to just elevate non-traditional forms of thought, non-traditional forms of research, non-traditional forms of making connections. Um, so I'm jumping between topics, but basically it's it's just to, to actually create inclusive design, that's such a huge task that we need everybody on board. Like we, not just the graduates of this program, we need every single person pretty much who has the privilege to be in this um, industry because that's the other piece I think I'm always very cognizant of is there is this um, privilege balance in tech where a few people, because tech reaches so many, the decision of one person who is a designer on a project, you know, for Visa or for Scotia or for Facebook, they make a decision and that impacts like thousands, millions, billions of people. And that's a privilege to have gotten to be at that table and to make that decision. So I think it's particularly important that people who, us people who work in tech and who work for these big organizations where decisions get amplified, uh, that we really, really, really think about this and bring all of us to the table because there is this kind of, um, it is the privilege that we have of being in and being able to make those decisions that we have to be responsible for that. Yeah, mm. and also look at, who is getting that privilege and uh, are some people more likely to than others, which I think we all know the answer to. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's well said. I mean, the, the, uh, the parallels between, I, ha I have thought of this, but I mean, the parallels between the journey uh, that somebody who uh, has benefited from whiteness goes on uh, 
is not dissimilar from the journey that I feel like, uh, you know, organizations go on as they try and uncover the places where they may be participating in um, other types of not race-based exclusion. Um, but, I, but I guess part of what I liked about what you're saying is that the, a lot of the nuance is in the, the friction between the want, and, and this is a, uh, yeah, wanting, wanting immediacy, wanting tangibility, wanting like what are next steps. That's the way, that's not just a work thing. That's like a, how life operates these days. It's like, go, 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 do, do, do. Uh, it is productivity focused. Um, and so, uh, like you're saying, as somebody who, uh, if you have benefited from whiteness and you want to come awake to the ways in which that is, um, you know, coming at a cost for yourself and for many, many other people more significantly. Um, the answer is not, you know, to like send 10 text messages to your friends of color asking how they're doing. I mean, that may be something, but the, the first step is there is an internal, there's a whole body of an internal work and questioning and unlearning that has to happen. And that is something that is just, I find uh, we, these days, society is not really conditioning us for that type of work. You have to really seek it out for yourself. And I, and I think in the same ways, those systematic forms of exclusion, you know, like if you work in financial services and uh, you know, you're thinking about uh, credit underwriting and inequity as it relates to credit underwriting, you could try and take a really narrow, like uh, tech focused approach to how you're gonna solve that problem by we're going to use it, we're going to train our algorithm differently, blah, blah, blah. But there's also some larger questions to ask about, like, why are things that way? Who benefited? Who benefits from this status quo? What are the forces exerting themselves? It's a whole different set of questions, an entire different type of contemplation and reflection than what we normally would do when we're trying to go through a problem solving process. Um, so it feels like there's a lot of muscles that need to be developed, I guess. Yeah. And one thing I'll add to that is that like that kind of culture that you encapsulate as a go, 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 do, 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 that's actually um, indicative of white supremacy, right? Like that whole culture comes from this like super productivity oriented, like must show uh, results. That is part of that culture that none of us benefit from. And that's, I think, what I've taken away from my, um, a lot of my learning over the last, um, I would say year is really like the time that I've kind of set the challenges for myself to really read and to think about it, to write about it, to talk to people about it. I think uh, not to jump between topics, but one of the toughest kind of hurdles for me personally had been to just actively start to talk about it. If, if it's public, like if it's to a group that I'm part of at work, if it's to friends, if it's to my sister, if it's to my parents, like just bring it up. Um, because I'd always had this kind of fear that if I did talk about it, I would come off wrong or I would say something wrong. And I think a big part of my learning is that that's like, not that talking will fix it, but it's for some people like me, I'm a talkative person. It's an important step to kind of, um, to really let it sink in and to think about it. So it's this kind of like thought process where what's the worst that could happen? I could sound stupid and people could, you know, misunderstand me or they could think I'm not coming from the place that I'm coming from or no change happens because we're all too scared to sound stupid and mm -hmm. for people to misinterpret where we're coming from. So I kind of like I've chosen the uh, the one where I do talk and the one where I do try to learn and the one where I do try to make 
what I keep, what I can happen. Um, and that's kind of what I'm committed to. And I'm going to remain committed to that. And like what I do this year and what I do next year probably won't be the right thing because it's so complicated, but like, this is a lifetime commitment and, you know, I'm just going to continue to figure it out and continue to talk to other people who want to talk about it. And I think uh, the other piece that I do want to mention is we've started talking about race and anti-racism because obviously it's been such a like big year um, for many allies and many new allies or many new people who are learning about it to really have it come into their um, periphery. And something else that I've been talking to peers and colleagues about is just around how discreet yet connected so many of these problems are. So when we're talking about white supremacy, like that's also the um, the root of other forms of exclusion, including exclusion based on physical abilities or exclusion based on age. Um, you know, like it's, it is all actually connected, but the problems are discrete. So I think the other thing we can run into is if we're unclear and we say, um, hey, and this big time happened with feminism, right? Mm. Like back in the 70s with a feminism wave. And I'm by no means an expert on this, to be honest. But the gist of it, like the TLDR that I guess I could share is um, when you lumped feminism into this one uh, group, you ended up leaving a lot of people behind, particularly women of color. And so that's what happens when you also don't discreetly call out, like, what are we talking about right now? So we've been talking about anti-racism and that is rooted in like in a lot of the same things that other forms of exclusion are rooted in, but it has its, its own unique set of problems, its own history that's discreet from some of these, from any of the many things we could talk about from the, all the many groups that are excluded. Yeah. I, um, I was, you, you segued naturally into what I was going to ask you about next, which is, I guess, how do you see the relationship between you know, inclusive design as practice, or even just design, equitable design, ethical design um, as practice. And then some of these, um, you know, some of these uh, very human problems around exclusion. Um, like, it, I, I guess I, I am asking that from the place of uh, some of what you were just alluding to, where there is it feels like we often fall short of having language that's adequately equipped to name, you know, what is discrete as a specific type of exclusion and uh, the individual problems that come there versus, um, you know, like what is a, how does that apply to a design practice beyond just being better human beings? You know, like if I read more, about uh, racial inequity and the history of why things are the way they are today. And I make an intentional effort in my personal life to, to be uh, an ally. That's one thing, but it's different than me being a designer who is designing for a different set of outcomes. I guess, how do you find yourself navigating these different worlds where some of the similar topics are applying, but, but the set of things you do about it might be different? I think that's a good question. I think that um, immediately the the thought that comes to mind, and that's uh, it comes there because I do think in uh, the in the iteration of design that we're currently in, there's a lot of emphasis placed on research, uh, which I wholeheartedly do buy into. Um, love the fact that design is not research based, um, and I guess has been for a long time, but uh, that we 
have these sets of tools and frameworks that we can access. But I think that one uh, flaw of that process is this belief that if you run, you know, a thousand person survey and back it up with 10 interviews and then do usability testing, you understand fully your target base. You understand where they're coming from. You understand what they're thinking. Um, and the word that was kind of uh, that had like its rise and fall um, in tech and in design was empathy, right? Like first it was kind of like everybody was, we need to have empathy for our user. We need to understand them. We need to get how they're feeling. And then the fall of it came with, um, there are limits to empathy. If, if the people we are designing for are not at the table, there's only so much that you're going to be able to design for them. It should almost ideally should always be with them. So I think the kind of cheat answer in the sense, because maybe it's obvious for anybody who's kind of even following this conversation or anybody who's kind of studied that is that you just need to make sure that you're designing with a group that's representative of the people who you're designing for. Um, outside of that, I do think that tactically, um, research is a great way to check your bias. Um, being really open to uh, changing your mind to being called out. I think that's the other thing I've uh, gotten, who, who can ever feel they've gotten, say they've gotten really comfortable being called out or criticized. You know, it's probably never easy, but um, I think it is kind of this, just opening yourself up to knowing that everything you knew yesterday might've been wrong and to being told that maybe you should reconsider. So I think it's kind of uh, in the absence or while, while we are working toward hopefully a more representative um, team, and I mean like whole, globally, um, what we can do is just keep, is keep an open mind um, and make sure that we are checking our biases, checking our opinions. And I think it's not um, to kind of add to that part about an inclusive team. Um, it's not enough to just get the people at the table. You also have to create the kind of table that everybody wants to sit at, because I think that that's one thing um, it's super important because if you create an environment where people aren't comfortable being themselves or bringing their full selves, or if the culture is overwhelmingly white, um, still, even if the people aren't, you're not going to actually create a team that's inclusive. It's going to be diverse, but it's not going to be inclusive. And I think uh, actually OCAD did a great job of talking to us about that quite a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I have little moments um, like when thinking about inclusive design related stuff or uh, more, you know, issues of exclusion that play out in society writ large. Uh, these little moments of like, um, it's almost like deja vu, but it's not really deja vu. It's just a similar type experience of like uh, a lot of what feels like we're trying to describe is just being better people. Like if, right. if we were just better human beings, what percentage of these things would go away? And that's not totally true. Like there, as, as you said before, there are particularities to each different type of exclusion um, that matter and are different and unique and need particular addressing. And a lot of those things have been engineered into systems and I don't care how many, just how many great human beings you have operating in a totally broken system, but, um, it, it, I still have these little glimpses of like, eh, if we were all just better listeners and we're more empathetic and more willing to come off of our priors and admit we were wrong, 
you know, like what percentage of this stuff would go away? And it's not really that helpful of a thought exercise, but I have that <laughs> thought semi-frequently. I think that, no, I think that's interesting. I think that's interesting. Um, if we're going to take bets, I would say that I'm an optimist and I'm a believer that human nature is generally good. I won't say anything political, but sometimes something is, you know, show up in the news and I'm just like, okay, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> there are some people that just don't get it, <laughs> but I do, I'm a, I am a believer that most people mean well, maybe I'll be proven wrong in my life. <sighs> It's hard to also know, because even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking about like, well, maybe most people mean well when you're an educated white woman, right? Like, I don't know, maybe that's just the view that I've had of the world that's kind of convinced me that the world is a certain way um, and it isn't. But I guess I do kind of, it's a good thought experiment because I do kind of fall back and say, let's say 85% of it would not be fixed if we were all just well-intentioned. Um, it really is. It really will require, I think, systemic change that is starting and kind of happening. And none of us, like we, we don't have the privilege of being alive for that many years. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to say um, whether we're making progress because sometimes it can really feel like we're not. Like I kicked my TikTok addiction to the, you know, to the curb, which I'm very happy about because now I have all this free time. Thank you. Thank you. But there was one TikTok and it was um, a woman just showing her uh, father, maybe grandfather um, at the hospital. And I was, you know, some TikTok gets very real as I know you, uh, you also partake. And um, she just asked, she was just telling him, and this was way back last year about the protest. And he was like, wait, are we still, uh, he's like, race, we're still, uh, that's still an issue. He's like, I thought we would have already solved it by now. And he's like, and I think the caption was something like my 101 year old grandpa or something. So it's just, sometimes I feel like optimistic because I am an optimist. And I like to think that we all want the best. Um, and then, yeah, you get kind of reality checks like that of people who maybe were alive a hundred years before you. And I think that when I do look at my day-to-day -day, um, and I look at my own behavior day-to-day, -day, it is, I mean, it gets really meta, but how much do I do because it's self-driven and how much it is of it is external incentive and what I'm incentivized to do by the system. And I think if you go on a really meta level, you could say that hundred percent of our lives are, cause why are we all living like this? Like we all have, like many of us share a very similar kind of lifestyle where we do very specific types of things. Is it possible that all of us just kind of woke up with this drive to do the same thing when we were born or is, has the system shaped us all? Wow. Yeah. I want to ask a follow-up, but uh, I think my head might explode. Yeah, you know? <laughs> the matrix. Yes, the essence of existence. Um, I mean, as it relates to, um, I mean, you mentioned TikTok. I guess, how, how do you understand uh, technology to fit into some of these topics that we're talking about, exclusion, systematic or otherwise? Yeah, I think we started talking about this. We got onto this topic last time, and I've just been... <laughs> thinking about it obsessively <laughs> over break, particularly when you have time, when one tends to have time about um, how, what is social media, specifically network technology. So this is kind of outside of my immediate 
current working role at least. Um, but I do definitely keep an eye on like the trends that happen in the TikToks and the Twitters. And I think one of the things that TikTok has managed to do, and I'm sure, I mean, um, I'm sure China, this is not their first app that kind of takes advantage of the network effect in this specific way, because they uh, do have some pretty innovative technology there that I think we always look over the fence and we're like, cool, that's that's gonna, you know, we're, we're gonna invent something like that soon, hopefully. So uh, what I found fascinating about TikTok is that unlike with Instagram or with Twitter or with Facebook or with LinkedIn, where you over time build your followers, like even with uh, Instagram, I, you know, I happen to know people who have been successful creating kind of an influencer profile on Instagram. They really had to work for that. They had to figure out who their core target market was. They had to post a lot. They had to hashtag a lot. Uh, they had to get specific followers and build those followers they had to market uh same with youtube like that's uh building your audience over time and hopefully in some kind of niche field like it takes time and with tiktok it's this fascinating like the algorithm literally chooses who's employed as an influencer i've read the stories of the top influencers on tiktok it took me a while to find them because i was all over the algorithm at first and then I kind of uh, clue into the fact that these specific profiles are the top followed profiles. So I'm kind of going through and I'm just like, cool. I mean, these kids are like 10 years younger or more than me. So, I mean, it's a little weird, but like, I'm just like, cool. But like, explain to me how this is any different than the other kids that are posting dances and lip syncing. And so I start to research it and um, my suspicions confirmed, like the influencers are they also didn't know how they got famous. This is not your Twitter, Instagram deal where you're working, you probably already have an audience also on YouTube, you're cross posting. Like this isn't your, what we're used to as social media celebrity and influencing. This is somebody who on their way to dance class posted a video that ended up blowing up and then they got a million followers. And from there they just built. But that initial decision, how I can imagine is that the algorithm was basically like, okay, you based on everything we already know from all the other apps, we know, or from history and from other um, algorithms, we know that a person of your profile with your voice intonation, using your kind of clips with your movement, with your pitch, like literally it's looking at things that aren't like, it's looking beyond, are you a 17 year old girl? And you know, I'm a, in middle America, it's looking at like, I, I really think your voice pitch, like, uh, do you tend to lift your shoulder or not? Like it's looking at things that are not detectable by a human. So I literally, this is the conclusion I'm coming to is that AI has employed these influencers. It is no longer us because there's so many think pieces. If you start looking on like Reddit and so on being like, why are these people famous? Like, I don't, I don't get it. And this is maybe maybe it's possible we're just getting old, right? It's possible that, you know, the generation above us looked at Instagram and was like, how are these influencers coming to be? But I think there is something unique here because TikTok is the first social app that we've had this big that doesn't at all rely on followers. It just serves you up videos based on its algorithm. And that's how it makes people famous and therefore profitable. So to kind of I'm just, I'm in that hole and I'm just going deeper and deeper and I can't stop thinking about it. But to kind of extrapolate from that, um, what that kind of means is potentially your next employer will be an algorithm, right? Like, and and sometimes I already fear because I, I, I have a tiny, tiny, tiny internet presence, but nothing major. And 
I haven't worked on it and it's not something I'd prioritize, but I already sometimes feel like if I don't have clout on the internet, I'm invisible. Like I should have a Twitter following and not like dancing TikTok type stuff, but like in my field, I should be tweeting about my field. I should be posting on LinkedIn more often because it already almost feels that sometimes an employer might make their decision based on your quote unquote legitimacy, which is more and more starting to be determined by algorithms. So it's just, um, so what does that mean? That could mean that overall, I think technology's had some really nice effects for celebrity where, you know, you cut some of that middleman, you don't have to get chosen or have a connection with a studio exec. You can just post a YouTube video next day. You can be in a movie, you can create a movie of your own, like Blair Witch Project, that was like 20 years ago. I'm like, I really like that movie. <laughs> anyway, wow. so um, basically, it's uh, it's interesting. And what does that mean? Is it does it mean more inclusion? Does it mean so? Where what it cuts out is some of that kind of middle networking, but what it adds is some of this what feels like randomness, and it almost feels like really we should all just be catering to the algorithms, and that's just scary. Yeah. Sometimes, oh, just to add one more thing, sometimes the people around me, because I'd spend so much time on TikTok, will make fun of me and say, like, your humor has been shaped and your taste of music has been shaped by algorithms. Because I'll just find, and I think, like, the internet's been doing that. Because if you don't get meme culture, you're not just going to get in there and be like, why is this cat on a you know, <laughs> desk so funny? But it's just, it's, it's a little crazy. <laughs> Somebody's going to listen to this and you're like literally casting a picture of us living in the matrix 20 years from now. It's yeah. going to be very depressing, uh, but you present a very uh, compelling case. Um, I, I, yeah. And I do, you said at one point, uh, maybe we're just getting older. We are definitely getting older, but I have had the thought like, does every, were my parents at 32, like, Oh, TV cable, all the youth are screwed. They're never going to read a book because now they have Nickelodeon. And so we're, so I wonder, you know, like, I don't know, it's easy for me to read things uh, about the incessant. Um, I read this book last year called uh, Trick Mirror. Which is oh, a really I love that one. Gia Tolentino. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, she's talking about like the implications for identity formation when there's no off switch when you're constantly performing your identity for a digital audience that never goes away and is 24 seven and always listening, what happens then? And so I read that and I'm like, yeah, I needed time as a kid. I needed time, you know, doing stupid stuff in the woods, like imagining that I was playing with swords or what, I mean, I needed, I needed space to like mess around and fail and not be, uh, you know, polished or turned on so that I could become who I am now. Uh, which I guess probably has some holes in it because like, why is who I am now going to be the goal for whoever's Gen Z now? But so I, I, all of those things resonate for me. At the same time, I wonder, this is a totally different cohort of young people who are coming up. This, this is the water that they as fish are swimming in and they will adjust and adapt. And maybe I'm just being an old fogey. Um, so, but um, when you were at OCAD, did you ever read um, or were exposed to Ursula Franklin? Doesn't sound familiar. Remind me. She's a Canadian metallurgist uh, who, who kind of like from a historical point of view, wrote some things. We had to listen to one of the Massey lectures that she did. And then I 
subsequently got sucked into some of the stuff that she's written kind of about technology, not in its specific form factor of AI or mobile phones or whatever, but more just kind of like, how do we um, understand technology? And one of her ideas was basically like that um, technologies can be prescriptive or they can be organic and organic technologies are things that are like, you know, they require us to exert our will on them in order for them to work. And then there are more like prescriptive technologies, which are like, you know, you follow three different steps and then you get, you know, it's the type of technology that led to the industrial revolution, that type of thing. And um, I guess basically like if you read through some of her stuff, you kind of get the sense that dysfunctional relationships with technology come when they stop asking us the question of what we wanted to do and instead just start feeding us the answer you know the algorithm for tiktok just it knows that i love it when there's the videos of the dog talking in a human voiceover and the problem is it's not that it knows you love that it knows that you love that specific color of dog and that specific setting and that song in the background they match that like it's literally not even that obvious and that's the problem is you can't even trace and that's what you're talking about but yeah Yeah. that's yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess I, the layer even on top of that, like, I, I didn't get on my phone wanting to watch videos of dogs talking. I got on my phone because, uh, you know, I was standing on the bus, and I wanted to kill some time. And the next thing you know, I lost 20 minutes that otherwise I might have been using, you know, if you had, if you had asked me right before I opened my phone, what do you want to spend the next 20 minutes yeah. on? I might have answered with like, I'd like to spend some time reflecting on this cataclysmic thing that's coming for me tomorrow or whatever, or, you know, uh, feeling something or whatever, dreaming of something. I would never say I want to watch, I probably wouldn't say I want to watch dogs talking with a human voiceover, but nonetheless, the 20 minutes are gone and I never, you know, never thought twice about it. So I, I think, um, I guess that's what scares me as it relates to inclusion and exclusion in product design. If, If we're not even asked you know, what we want out of our relationship with the technology, the answer is presupposed, then it feels like it's just going to propagate whatever the status quo is. And we know that the status quo involves a bunch of exclusion. And that's right. And I think we've been using TikTok because it's just so interesting as an example. But if you look at almost any other form of social media, and I'm sure TikTok actually, this applies to them too, but to your point, if you're not asked and it just serves you your status quo, that's the increasing polarization of all of our opinions, right? Because when you go, if you're somebody who already holds the opinion that, for example, um, which one, which example to use? Like if you hold the opinion that the moon landing didn't happen, to use one that's less politically charged in the moment, and that's kind of the vein of the undertone of TikToks you've been um, watching or the people that you've been following without you making a decision, that view just gets amplified back at you. And so there is that kind of, there's so many levels here. Like there's that attention economy where um, it's pure time and your own uh, lost productivity and creativity and relaxation and your own lost boredom and relationship building and attention to the world around you, all of that combined with, and then the other piece of it is just that magnification of your own view reflected back at you so you you know no longer understand um the people around you and I think I was 
watching death to 2020 i believe this is where i got that from it's a netflix mockumentary another thing i'm doing is no more netflix like i have one day a week of netflix for that same reason um but the uh the mockumentary i think it was there that um hugh grant acting as the racist professor but you know he uh, part of his role not the actor himself um but he was basically saying um that polarization is the biggest problem of our time and obviously it's a mockumentary it's a joke but it made me think because i'm like is there a bigger problem um and when we can no longer speak to each other and i'm a victim of this as well because um i mean i think many of us are it's when you start to look at the other side as inherently evil and your right is inherently good and that's the only opinion that you kind of get reflected back at you and i'm not saying there isn't inherent evil there is evil for sure but that doesn't always that's not always the divide of um you know people who want to keep their kids home during covid versus people who choose to send their kids to school there isn't inherent evil on either side of that but it can start to feel like that when you're in the polarized um internet chat room so it's just I don't know. I just went from a techno optimist to like really, really cautious very quickly. And I can tell you this is week two of Netflix only one day a week and no TikTok. And I mark down every time I go on social media for the very reason that I, especially in 2020, a, day, a year that we were all kind of cooped up and cut off from any of our usual sources of connection. Um, I just felt that I lost a lot of my year to talking dogs, but also to, you know, tweets and um, all of that. And I just don't want to lose more time. And I think that's kind of where I'm driven from now. It's a little bit more of the attention economy piece. Uh, to bring it full circle, I feel like with the, as it relates to the attention economy, you know, earlier when we were talking about systems um, and, you know, like what are the sets of questions that one as a designer contemplates in order to recognize places where, you know, this is not just a user versus design problem, but maybe there are some larger questions we need to be asking, you know, the question of how did things, who benefits from the status quo, I think is a powerful question in that space. And I, and I think that is the problem that I notice at the core of any of these, of any of the business models that are predicated on attention time spent viewing, whatever the thing is, you, the set of incentives that are in place are just, there's no way that it doesn't end up uh, creating any innovation that's pointed in that direction is going to be innovation that is intended to spend, to monopolize more of your attention, to uh, make it harder for you to um, tap your will as you make the decision whether or not to use the thing. I mean, the fact that you have to, you know, manually note every time that you're going on social media, because otherwise it's so frictionless, it's so simple, it's so convenient that you just wouldn't even think twice. And I'm exactly the same way. I don't even have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, any of those things, but I have LinkedIn and I have Strava for my running. And I will go on those mindlessly without even thinking when I'm like waiting for toast to come out of the toaster. And it's, and it's just, I mean, I don't even think maybe LinkedIn is making money. I've, LinkedIn's probably making money off of my attention. I don't know, but but it's the the entire design ecosystem has a, a set of incentives that make that so um, 
easy to get into a relationship that is not promoting a sense of well-being. Mm. It is promoting a whole set of other shorter, uh, shorter term outcomes that probably are very financially beneficial for the company, not as awesome for me as a normal person. I think one thing just to break in there um, that I found was happening to me in 2020 is the less I saw, um, you know, we had to socially distance all of the above, like we didn't have a workplace to come into events were canceled, you could see family less, all of that. So as I felt my own personal ties, not getting weaker, but just getting more digital, uh, which in a sense, like, you know, I think we can all say that 2020 has been a bit more disconnected from your core kind of people. And what I found happened is I was spending more time on the internet with the people I followed on the internet. And all of a sudden, I was speaking to a really close friend of mine about this was actually, uh, she lives in London, UK, and we talk on the phone all the time. And um, one of the things that she was like, that we were talking about is, with it was already happening that the internet became our peers so all of a sudden like uh, jack dorsey's my peer kendall jenner is my peer like things that are going on in their lives and the bars that are set and the things that they do all of a sudden becomes a measure and a bar for my own life and that is such a valuable advertising tool there is nothing like it there is nothing like convincing most people that they have to compete with the Kardashians and wealth and clothing and with, um, I don't know, Jack Dorsey and travel, like, you know, it's, it's, it's such a powerful advertising tool. And that's part of why I also have to disconnect is I'm trying to bring myself back to my own life so I can grapple with the massive problems that we're facing as humanity from the place that I'm in. And to add to that, the reason it was so easier for me to even give the Kardashian example than it was to give the Dorsey example, even as I was speaking, is because um, the internet tends to amplify, in my experience, maybe I'm looking at the wrong part of the internet because the internet is so huge, but my experience is the internet tends to amplify things that often when we look at it, we're like, what's the inherent value for humanity in this? And you've already said it with the talking dogs, but it's kind of like, why do I care that this is, and I'm not a materialistic person, but I'm like, why am I curious about this Birkin bag when I should be thinking about climate change? Like this is the internet should be incentivizing us to, you know, dismantle systems that don't work to save our environment, but instead it doesn't. And that's, I think what's most frustrating for me. And I think it is kind of an old folky thing, but sometimes I'm like, man, I hope kids these days want to grow up to be like scientists and uh, economists and not just influencers on TikTok. Like I literally fear that, that we are rewarding this sort of like attention grab this. We're rewarding people who can get a like from us and who can game the algorithm. But are those the same people that are going to lead us out of this cataclysmic disaster that we're already in? I hope so. That's And that's kind of where we've ended up now, even kind of some people would say with the billionaires we have today, it's kind of like, okay, save us, Elon. Like we put our <laughs> trust in you by liking all your tweets. Just save us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> well, I mean, I could bounce from uh, topic to topic with you for many hours, but um, in the interest of um, preserving your evening and mine, uh, why don't we end with something more hopeful? You're not watching Netflix. You're not looking at TikTok. What is something that you have, other than those things that you have uh, been looking at or listening to or reading um, that has been inspiring or uplifting or helping you out these days? 
great question. Um, so right now I am reading Cal Newport's Deep Work, probably kind of in theme with what I've been talking about. It is about um, how do you create time and energy to go deep? I actually picked up the book on a recommendation. It's not a new book. I read his other book called So Good They Can't Ignore You. I thought it was good. Um, my friends and family make fun of me for reading nonfiction as much as I do. Almost every book I read is a nonfiction book of this kind of vein, or I I've been drawn to them. And my sister actually called it like self-help. Um, so I do, one of my goals for 2021 is with my all my newfound attention to read more topical books, to learn more about the environment, how engines work, you know, to actually get into deep into topics and to read more fiction. Um, but this was just already um, on my Kindle was recommended, not new. And as I'm reading it, he talks about, obviously, none of the things we talked about today are mind blowing. That's what's sad about them. A few years ago, he was talking about the same thing, uh, the attention economy, how social media essentially uh, incentivizes specific types of behaviors and specific styles of work and what that could um, result in. And so I think right now I'm finding it uplifting because as much as I don't believe the frameworks and tools fix everything, he is providing a bit of a framework for the conundrum that I all of a sudden found myself in, which is that um, I, I believe in creating real value in the world that hopefully will be beneficial and a net positive for humans. I can't say that I'm necessarily doing that every day. Obviously it's a lofty goal, but that's what I'm working toward. And he talks about that and how hard it can be in our current climate and our current social media status to work that way and to think that way when we're seeing different things rewarded and different behaviors are incentivized. Uh, so I'm just kind of finding a bit of kinship with it. So if any of this resonates, any of this conversation resonates, I'd recommend it. I'm only halfway in, so we'll see how it ends. <laughs> okay, that's good. Well, thank you, Jen, for talking with me. Uh... Thank you for having me. Inclusive Conversations is produced by Manifold. This podcast is our safe space for unique and diverse conversations with people and creatives working towards more inclusion in the world. If you'd like to find out more about us or learn how to connect with Jen, please check the description of this episode or head over to our website where you can read the show notes, hellomanifold.com forward slash conversations.